The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. Don't know. My name is, is Pastor Bill. It's my privilege to get to share with you this morning. Thank you so much for joining, whether you're here in person or, or watching online. We're certainly thrilled to have you be a part of our time this morning. And as I understand, Pastor Dale and Nancy are watching online. So, hello. Good morning. Go ahead and open your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to look beginning at verses 18 through 25. I want to say thank you to Justin and Daniel and Dennis and Michelle and Wendy. Now, Come Thou Fount is, is one of my favorite songs, so I, I get excited when that one's in the set. As a reminder, if you didn't uh, bring a Bible this morning, we have some on the back table. Please feel free to grab one of those. If you don't own a Bible, feel free to just take one of those. If you don't like those Bibles, feel free to hang out afterwards. Someone will probably leave a Bible. Maybe you can (laughs) snag theirs. Well, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. If you would, would you please stand for the reading of God's word if you're able. Before we read, I'm sorry, would you pray with me? Father God, we come here this morning in need of you, in need of your grace, in need of your strength. I thank you for the time that we have spent singing and directing our focus back to you. Thank you for the time that we have already spent with you in prayer. I pray now for this time in your word that it further draws our attention and our focus back to you. I pray for humble hearts and that you continually increase our desire to spend time with you in your word and in prayer and in singing praises to you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning with verse 18. God's word says, Servants, Be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is God's word. You may be seated. As we... Read this section of scripture, we can notice this connection 
to what we discussed last time in verses 13 through 17. And there's also a connection with the beginning of chapter 3 that we'll discuss the next time that I'm up here. So there is that connection, and I want us to look at it and consider that. So I hope that in this precious section of Scripture, we notice more than just that connection. I hope this will be encouraging to you today. I know it is for me, and I, I needed this today. I think many of you know that when Pastor Brian or I are up here, we, we often are largely preaching to ourselves. We're, we're sharing what the Lord has, has put on our hearts and studying this particular section of Scripture that we're in. And I have to just, just say that the sovereignty of God is not lost on me here. Now, for many years, Pastor Dale has preached to us on the topic of suffering. I can remember a time when he said that there's three kinds of people in this world. Those who are in the midst of suffering, those just coming out of a time of suffering, and those about to enter into a time of suffering. The fact that God in his sovereignty has us today in a passage that gets into the topic of suffering while Pastor Dale is experiencing his own suffering is the goodness of God to each of us. I can't help but wonder, was, was Pastor Dale's preaching on suffering all those years, not only him preaching to us, but the God preparing him for what he is experiencing now? As we sang earlier, glory be to our great God. So first, let's, let's look at what is happening here. Peter is he's talking to believers. He's talking about the fact that they are chosen and set apart. That this world is not their home. And so, what does that mean? What does that look like now? What does that look like for them? And what does that look like for us today? If we are Christians, what does that mean that our lives should look like? Or what does this truth mean in terms of how we approach certain relationships? If we are not of this world, if we are set apart, do we still need to obey authorities? Now we should see these verses in light of verse 12 in chapter 2, which reads, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Or, as we read last time in verse 15, For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So Peter is saying that our, our conduct matters. It matters for our own sanctification, our growing more and more like Christ. And it matters in that others may see our good works. They may see our good deeds. They may see our obedience and glorify God. They may come to saving faith themselves. So our conduct matters. So Peter goes on from talking about our conduct in verse 12 to addressing the topic of submission. He is saying, as we discussed previously, submit to the governing authorities. And now we get into submission at work. I find it interesting that Peter keeps moving closer. He starts with the government to, to work, to marriage. It moves closer, and in some ways that moving closer means 
that it gets harder because it's more personal. Yet, in some respects, this one this week, the one about work, can be, can be the easiest to, to ignore in our current day. Today, as opposed to in Peter's day, well, we can just quit. Or we can quit the other two as well, but this one's certainly much easier to do that. We just quit if we don't like it or if we don't want to have to submit. Now, I'm not saying that that's always wrong, but it is interesting that for most of us, we don't really have to endure things in this area today. If we have a hard or unjust boss, well, we just quit. We just find another job. If we're not feeling fulfilled in our work, we leave that job and find another one. This is an option that we have today that they didn't have when Peter was writing this letter. But I think it does beg the question, should we be more willing to endure an unjust boss? Is there a purpose or a benefit to enduring an unjust boss? So Peter is addressing this idea of submission, submission to various authorities. And there's some common themes here in all of these three that I, that I want us to notice. There are limits to this submission. We do not submit when we are being asked to sin or go against God's commands. But there are also other limits. There's an overreach of authority. This authority can be abused. For example, think of when it comes to our own bodies. If I were to give an extreme example, if a husband is is physically abusive to his wife, in that situation, his wife, well, she's not being asked to sin, but we would not tell her that she is forced to submit and endure this abuse. He is abusing his authority, and and she's not expected to submit to that. There's also a, a bigger picture. What Peter is describing is not submit just for the sake of submitting, but it's submitting to point to Christ. We can submit because whether they know it or not, each of these authorities are under God and will answer to him. We know it's not about us, so we can submit. Our hope is not in this authority, but our hope is in God. Ultimately, we submit to God, not to man. So in our submission to man, we are doing it out of submission to God. Okay, so that's just a little setup for our passage this morning. So let's, let's get into this. And we'll start, by, we'll start by addressing the elephant in this passage. What is Peter saying, or what does he mean with saying servants and masters? Let's look at it in verse 18. Servants. Be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Peter addresses servants or slaves, depending on your translation. So there's no getting around the fact that that servants, in verse 18, at least in part, refers to household slaves. But we need to remember the time period in which Peter is writing. This needs to be viewed in a first century context, not a 21st century one. Early on in this country, as well as other places around the world, slaves were kidnapped and then bought and sold as personal property. 
Slaves were not only mistreated, many were abused and sometimes killed. This was a horrible thing. During Peter's time in the Roman Empire during the first century, slavery was different. Slaves were often well-educated. They might have served as physicians or tutors to children. Though it was difficult, slaves had the opportunity to buy their freedom. Don't get me wrong. Slavery was never desirable. The New Testament nowhere affirms slavery. It merely regulates it among Christians. Some argue that it's likely that Peter has both slaves and free servants in mind here. Regardless, Peter calls all servants to submit to their master, even if they are unjust. You may not be a slave or a servant, but notice that almost straight away, Peter extends his commands from servants out to all Christians. In verse 18, Peter says servants or slaves, and then in verse 19, it becomes the word one. See where it says one endures sorrows? Since all of us are servants to earthly masters in certain contexts, all of us can apply this passage to ourselves and live out Peter's teaching. So we don't dismiss this passage thinking that because it's talking about slavery and therefore it doesn't apply to us today. We can understand this today in terms of employee and employer. But we also don't dismiss this passage because we're retired or we're not in the workforce for whatever reason. Because we can all experience situations where we are treated unjustly. Peter has described Christians as those who have been born again into a new life with new allegiances. And the further description of Christians as a people set apart as God's own possession. And as a kingdom of priests makes it necessary for Peter to explain how the new life in Christ is to operate within the most basic social unit. The idea in these verses is that as believers we are called to endure evil without retaliation. This does not mean that we allow evil to prevail. It is possible to fight injustice through suffering without repaying evil for evil. It also does not necessarily mean that we surrender our lives to evil authorities, although such a thing might be required. It does mean that we endure harsh treatment even for doing good without seeking revenge. Verse 19 says, For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. We must do so ever mindful of God. For while non-believers might endure evil without vengeful retaliation, only those who suffer for the sake of the Lord will be rewarded. Peter's call is to submit to unjust literally crooked masters. That is the master in the home then and the workplace today, who is not necessarily harsh, but who is unscrupulous or unethical or not trustworthy. They take advantage of every opportunity to get ahead and walk all over the people under them. Peter's point is that we are to submit to our masters, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Now, as we said last time, if we're being honest, 
It's easier to submit when it's not work. It's easier to submit to the good and gentle. But it's harder to submit to the unjust, isn't it? There's no getting around it. We are being called by God's word to do something that is hard. We are to submit with all respect, as we see in verse 18. The word respect is literally fear. It's the word from which we get our English word phobia. So a respectful fear. Like I have a very respectful fear of spiders. Our girls were not allowed to have a spider as a pet when they were growing up. Our rule was that you cannot have as a pet something that I would pay someone to remove from our home. That covered a lot of things. Our text says, with all respect or fear. Scripturally, we are told to to fear only God. When we fear God, we're not fearing anything or anyone in place of him. But being mindful of God, that is, with a conscious awareness of who he is and what are his ways. Why? Why are we called to submit to an unjust boss? Why endure? Verse 20 says, For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Again, remember verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So we are to endure unjust suffering because that is what God's what God rewards or credits or honors. It is a gracious thing in the sight of God. We do it to honor God. It's not about the other person or even about us. It is about honoring and glorifying God. It is of no credit or honor to you if, if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. So if you're a Christian and your supervisor is constantly getting on you about, your, about the lack of quality in your work or being late or having an unprofessional attitude or appearance, that is not unjust suffering. You're getting what you deserve. That's just natural consequences. Too often we confuse getting our feelings hurt or having our pride bruised with unjust suffering. So this requires some level of, of humility. And being honest with ourselves. This requires a confidence in the sovereignty of God. Do we trust that God is in control and we can trust his plans? Pastor Brian was talking over the past couple of weeks about God's plans are not always our plans. Do we trust God's plans? On the other hand, if your being mindful of God is reflected in your hard work and diligent efforts, your timely manner and professional appearance, by your, but your supervisor continually uses you as the butt of their jokes or discriminates against you or credits others with your work or passes you over for promotion simply because of your faith, well, that is unjust suffering. To endure that is a gracious thing in the sight of God. You may not get your just credit or honor before man, but you will receive your just reward before God. Now, 
we have seen in this letter that Peter has been concerned with instructing us to how we are to deal with our suffering. Instead of making promises about getting out of your suffering, here Peter is encouraging our attitude in suffering. Peter is saying that our conduct matters. Often when we think of suffering, we think of afflictions. And that's not wrong. That certainly can be suffering. But do we think of unjust treatment as suffering? Or is that something that we shouldn't have to put up with? Something that's just unfair? Do we have any feeling of enduring suffering? Or do we just automatically run from it if possible? No one likes to suffer unjustly. Still, the Lord is pleased when we endure unjust suffering because it is a form of imitation of Christ. Verse 21 says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Christians are to follow in his steps. We have been called to suffer. Our suffering is not the result of an impersonal force like fate or chance. Rather, it is a vocation laid upon us by the Father. Some of you may have heard a gospel presentation that sounded like, come to Jesus and your life will get easier or better. But often scripture seems to say, come to Jesus and your life will get harder. Left to ourselves, we would not patiently endure suffering for doing what is right. We are prone to retaliate and treat others as poorly as we have been treated. Fewer tasks are harder to accomplish than to treat those who mistreat us as we would like to be treated. However, we have not been left to ourselves. We have been given the Holy Spirit to enable us to endure suffering. We have been given the word of God, which reminds us that suffering is not for nothing, but that it is used by God for his sovereign purpose. Nowhere nowhere is this more evident than in the life of Jesus. Peter tells us that not only is suffering a call for us, it was a call for our Lord. He is our example of how to cope with suffering. All of his sufferings were unjust, all of them. Yet he patiently endured them. We see it in our text with verses 22 to 23. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He did not retaliate in kind, but rather entrusted himself to the one judge who will perfectly repay all injustice. We can endure, trusting that God will take care of it in the end, that God will do what is right. Though we remember, what is right may be God's grace on them, just like the grace that he shows to you and I. Unlike Jesus, our suffering will redeem no one. However, like Jesus, our suffering serves God's plan. 
Therefore, we must embrace his call to suffer and turn only to him in our hour of need. John Calvin said, Nothing seems more unworthy and therefore less tolerable than undeservedly to suffer. But when we turn our eyes to the Son of God, this bitterness is mitigated. For who would refuse to follow him going before us? Jesus faced corrupt authorities who wanted to inflict suffering on him, even though he was innocent. But Jesus never lied to get out of it. He accepted his vocation as the suffering servant. Under the heavy pressure of temptation and the potential for suffering for Christ's sake, we often want to lie to ourselves or to others that we can indulge the flesh and not be subject to any real consequences for following Jesus. Yet God tells us the truth. To be honest with ourselves about sin, laying it aside, and to acknowledge before all who can hear that we are disciples of the Lord and will not put our submission to his authority behind any other allegiances the world offers. Now, three times in this text, Peter tells us that Christ died and that the purpose of his death was to enable us to live differently. Or another way to put it is that he tells us that God's purpose for us as a church is that we live like Christ, that we live righteously. And he tells us three times that this death of Christ is what enables this to happen. So three times, Peter tells us that Christ died and there was a purpose for his death. And that was to enable us to live a life that would be different or set apart from the world. We see this in verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So Christ suffered and died as an example so that we might follow in his steps. In other words, Christ suffered for us. He suffered even unto death for this purpose leaving us an example that we might follow in his steps. So God's purpose for us is that we follow in the steps of Jesus. And the enabling power behind that purpose is that Christ suffered for us. Christ didn't just suffer and die only to give us an example. He suffered for us, that is, in our place, on our behalf. Something happened in the death of Christ for us that guarantees its success in bringing us to follow in Christ's steps. The purpose is is that we live like Christ. The power is the substitutionary death of Jesus. He died for us to make us like him. Then we see verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So Christ suffered and died that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. The purpose of God for us, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. God's commitment to make it happen is stated like this. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree or on the cross. So Jesus' death on the cross was not only to give us our our get-out-of-jail-free card, 
It was not only to give us our ticket to heaven, but it was also that we might die to sin. Christ suffered for you. Christ bore our sins in his body on the cross. Christ's suffering was the agony of being nailed to the cross and dying there. And his suffering for us was his bearing our sins. It was a substitution. He bore them in death instead of our having to bear them in death. Jesus bore the death that we deserved. This is good news. And while ongoing worldly consequences of our sins are real and can be painful, our hope is that Christ bore our sins in his body on the cross. So I have to ask, do you believe this? It's done. So no more self-pity. No more wallowing or, or woe is me. Look what I've done. Look how bad I am. It, it's done. Christ bore our sins in his body on the cross. He already did it. Do you believe this about your own sins or about the sins of your brothers and sisters? The implications of this are huge. It means that, if we will, we can leave the past with God. We can say, Lord Jesus, I, I trust you. I trust that all my sins, all the ones that are public and all the ones that are private, all of them have been lifted, born, suffered for, and therefore removed from me. I bear them no more. I do not carry their guilt into the future with me. Do you believe that? You do not have to carry your sins or be burdened by them. You don't have to wake up with guilt or go to bed with guilt. You can bank your hope on the commitment of God and Jesus Christ bore our sins in his body on the cross. But notice again what God's promise is in this guilt-lifting death of Jesus that we see in verse 24. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. This corresponds with the purpose mentioned in verse 21, that you might follow in his steps. Following in Jesus' steps is the same as living to righteousness. So be honest. Does this sound like good news to you? Or does it feel like the good news of the cross is being given on one hand and taken away with the other? Does it feel like good news that the message of the cross, on the one hand, is a lifting of guilt, and on the other hand, is the laying on of a burden? On the one hand, the suffering and death of Jesus are for us and bear our sins away. That feels liberating and joyful and hopeful. On the other hand, the suffering and death of Jesus are designed by God to create people who follow in Jesus' footsteps and who live to righteousness. Does that feel like a works righteousness? A Jesus and, a, a Jesus plus kind of salvation? There are some who might say that the first work of the cross is liberating good news and the second is burdensome bad news. The grace of the cross is one thing, liberation from shame and guilt. And when we hear that the grace of the cross is not just liberation from the guilt of sin, but is also liberation from the power of sin, they don't always like that. 
For some, we want the cross to relieve us of our guilt and then allow us to go on living the same way. As long as we can keep asking for forgiveness at the end of the day, we're good. Now, there are various reasons for this. Some are our own pride or rebellious heart. Maybe there's painful memories from the past that feel too hard to overcome. Or maybe, more commonly, it's due to just theological misunderstandings. We're not talking about legalism here. We're not talking about a legalism that undermines grace. I want to stress that the cross liberates us from the enslaving power of sin, as well as the guilt of sin. And this does not diminish the good news. It magnifies it. Would it really be good news if the Bible taught that the death of Christ took away the guilt of sin and left us enslaved to its power? If that sounds like good news to you, that you could go on living the way that that the world does, only without punishment, that I can live my life however I want, I can do whatever I want because I'm forgiven, then what that shows is that you love sin and not God. But if you long to be set free, not only from the guilt of sin by the cross, but also from the enslaving power of sin by the cross, and these verses don't diminish the good news, they magnify it. We're not only considered not guilty, but the power of sin has been diminished. We are no longer slaves to sin, but we are now slaves to Christ. That is good news. That gives us so much more freedom to confess our sins and turn them over to God. Why would we hold on to them? What verse 24 is saying is that when Christ bore our sins in his body on the cross, he secured not only the removal of our guilt, but also release from our bondage. Christ bore our sins in his body that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That is the design and purpose and commitment of God in the cross. But Christ suffered and died also that by his wounds we have been healed. Verse 24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. By his wounds You are healed. It does not say by his wounds, healing is offered. Or by his wounds, healing is a possibility. It says by his wounds, you are healed. In other words, the cross is efficacious or effective in producing its desired result. It achieves what God designed for it to achieve. The cross does not merely create new possibilities. It creates new persons. If you are a Christian, God has already made you a new creation. Verse 25 says, For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the healing Peter has in mind. The return of straying, perishing sheep to the shepherd of their souls. If you have a a loved one that is not walking with the Lord, if their faith is true, rest assured, Christ will bring those straying sheep back into the fold. So I ask again, 
Is this good news to you? Is it good news that the design and purpose of the cross is not only to save us from the guilt of sin, but also from the power of sin? I hope you see that Peter wants you to see it as good news by the way he describes it in verse 25. The word of the cross brings us to a shepherd, not a slave master. The shepherd guides. He does not let sheep stray very far or very long. He uses a rod and a staff when he must. He provides, he protects, and he relentlessly pursues us with goodness and mercy all of our days. His commitment to do this is signed with the blood of Jesus. It is the new covenant, sealed with the blood of the covenant. Now, a question that I think we must consider is this. What does it mean to die to sin? Verse 24 says that he, Christ, himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin. So what does that mean in our experience? How does that happen? I think it works like this. I found this from John Piper to be helpful. He said, when the word of the cross breaks into our heart by the power of God's spirit, And we awaken to the fact that God loves us so much that he takes the life of his own son in order to bring us under his shepherd care, shepherd protection, and shepherd provision, and shepherd guidance. And that moment, we die to the lie of sin. We die to the power of sin's deceit, which tries to persuade us that a better future can be had through sin than through righteousness. What causes our death to sin is the work of the cross convincing us in the depth of our heart that God is committed to us like a mighty shepherd. We are alive to sin and believing in sin and following in sin until the cross unleashes on us the conquering love of God and constrains us to see that we are straying. We are self-destructing in the path of sin. And when the cross releases that power in us, we die to sin. And we awaken to the beauty of righteousness in the pasture of our all-satisfying shepherd. If we are in Christ, if we trust him alone for salvation, we receive the benefits of his perfect work. His perfect trust in the Father is counted to us. We are accepted into the flock of God on account of Jesus' work. We are freely justified if we receive him by faith alone. This justification is followed by sanctification. Our death with Christ enables us to live in righteousness and faithfulness as God's people. Over our lives, we are progressively enabled to fulfill the command to endure suffering patiently. John Calvin writes, a lot of John quotes. For he, Jesus, has not only brought this great benefit to us, that God justifies us freely by not imputing to us our sins, but he also makes us to die to the world and to the flesh, that we may rise again to a new life. Not that one day makes complete this death, but wherever it is, the death of Christ is efficacious for the expiation of sins and also for the mortification of the flesh. 
A flock of sheep, if they do not have a shepherd present to guide them, they wander about aimlessly. Individually, sorry, individual sheep can even end up separated from their brethren and exposed to great danger. Thus, it is little wonder that Isaiah 53, 6 compares sinners to sheep that have gone astray. Without Christ, without a shepherd, we cannot walk the straight and narrow way, but are always wandering off into sin. If there is to be any hope for us, we must have a shepherd to guard us, to lead us in righteousness, and keep us in God's fold. Jesus, Peter tells us, is the shepherd that we need. He alone can protect and guide us. He alone can restore us when in sin we try to leave God's fold. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Jesus bore your sins, my sins, our sins in his body on the tree, on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. His death on the cross was more than just punching your ticket to get into heaven. It accomplished that, but it also did more. We are to die to sin. Stop feeding it. Stop enabling the sin in your life. Too many people play with sin instead of putting it to death. John Owen said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. So if you are a Christian... We are willing to suffer for Christ. And he gave us the example, and we can follow in his footsteps. We die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we were healed. Peter is quoting Isaiah 53 here, where it says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Would you pray with me? Father God, We confess our tendency to take you for granted. To take the work of Jesus on the cross for granted. We confess our tendency to desire the things of the world instead of the things of you. We are tempted to love what you hate. Father, forgive us. We are thankful for the work of the cross. We are thankful for the forgiveness of sins, but also that the enslaving power of sin in our lives has been removed. We ask that you continue to strengthen us to fight sin. Help us to grow more and more like you and therefore desire sin less and less. Help us not to fear suffering from an unjust world. Give us a boldness to stand strong in your name for your glory. Give us the strength to endure suffering when needed. You are good. You are just. 
You are gracious to us. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.